0: A young black man killed in Chicago by two white police officers, shot in his back as he ran away, then shot repeatedly in his stomach, his neck, his face, and his genitals. Yet the police officers who killed him were never charged with a crime. Do you recognize the name James Clay Jr., a member of Chicago's black community, as well as his queer community? Although this sounds like an incident pulled from today's headlines, James Clay Jr. was actually hunted down by two police officers on a cold Thanksgiving day in 1970. Why? Because he dared to dress as a woman in public, breaking a centuries-old law. At the time, his death sparked outrage in Chicago amongst gay rights groups and the Black Panther movement, but there are few people today who would still remember his name. I am your host, Jeremy Wayne, and you are listening to Queerly Criminal, a podcast series dedicated to the discussion of crimes and criminals related to the queer community. Today's episode will focus on the death of James Clay Jr., Chicago's cross-dressing history, and police mistreatment of the black and queer communities. Before we delve into the life and death of James Clay Jr., I want to first build some background related to the cross-dressing culture of his city, Chicago. Anyone who is a fan of today's Drag Race franchise knows that the queens from the Windy City mean business. As Mystique Summers once said, bitch, I'm from Chicago. My boyfriend introduced me to Drag Race when we started dating about two years ago, and although he's only 22, he's been obsessed with the show for years. At first I was a skeptic, but now I am a true fan, and I recognize many of Chicago's top queens, including Dita Ritz, Katya, Kim Chi, Shea Coulee, and Trixie Mattel. Today Drag Race has around 200 million viewers and its star RuPaul is worth over 60 million. But when he was 10 years old in 1970, the year of James Clay's murder, Illinois was the first and only state at the time to have eliminated sodomy laws, which decriminalized homosexuality. This accomplishment aside, Chicago's queer community was still suffering from prejudice and oppressive laws. Public displays of affection between two people of the same sex were still illegal, as was cross-dressing which had been against the law throughout the United States for over a hundred years under what were called masquerade laws. According to History.com, these laws were originally intended to prevent farmers from masquerading as indigenous people to scare off tax collectors. Obviously problematic. But those racist and outdated laws would then be used to prohibit and punish what were considered gender variances or gender inappropriateness. It was a crime to have your face painted, discolored, covered, concealed, or disguised while in public. These masquerading laws would evolve into the three-article rule of thumb. The queer community of Chicago would circumvent these laws for years, marketing cross-dressing and drag as forms of entertainment. Lake Forest College found that as early as 1864, the Academy of Music on Washington Street and Hooley's Theater on North Clark Street presented cross-dressing minstrel shows, at that time, white male performers donned blackface makeup and experimented with concepts of race and gender. Years later, Chicago would experience the bohemian movement and jazz era, where queer culture thrived in certain neighborhoods and streets. Gay, quote, pansies and female impersonators were accepted and often successful as business owners and performers. I found an interesting book online by Jim Elledge titled Boys of Fairytown that discusses this era in Chicago's history. But when the Great Depression hit in 1929, many of the freedoms that the queer community had been experiencing quickly faded. According to Elledge, there was a post-Pansy Panic, where homosexuals were increasingly stigmatized and targeted by the police and society in general. But through it all, cross-dressing and drag survived the 1950s in the form of drag balls. Now, I personally think drag balls sound kind of amazing, um, but what I found is that these events regularly took place on Halloween and New Year's and were accepted as a type of masquerade ball. Female impersonators were hosts and entertainers, and these balls were racially integrated. I found the description of one such ball from the perspective of Miles Vollmer, who was a divinity student of all things at the University of Chicago in the early 30s. In one excerpt, he wrote, quote, Homosexuals participating are going to the limit, too freely and careless abandon. Discretion is flung to the winds as they let themselves go on one of the two nights of the year when they can openly be themselves, reveal their true natures, and be with others of their kind, without fear of arrest or public censure. I found Vollmer's observation particularly poignant because it shows that for decades queer people, particularly those known as transvestites or cross-dressers of the time, could only feel safe being themselves in public at socially acceptable parties twice a year on Halloween and New Years. That being said, it would now be hard to describe James Clay Jr. as anything but brave and independent. He wore women's clothes in public regularly. At only 24 years old in 1970, James had already been arrested by Chicago police 12 times in the short span between 1965 and 1969. John Demilio, who wrote a series for the Windy City Times, suggests that these arrests were the result of police harassment. Although there were several gay bars in Chicago, and six of these bars had full-time drag shows by 1966, female impersonation in public was still against the law, and police frequently patrolled areas with reputations as being gay-friendly. In these neighborhoods, cross-dressers were often sex workers. At a time when it was illegal to dress as a woman, outwardly queer people, especially those who live their lives challenging gender norms, would have had difficulty finishing school or keeping a job. Sex work might have been a way to survive, and it was definitely a way to end up with a long rap sheet like James Clay Jr., whose charges included impersonating a woman, soliciting men as a prostitute, resisting arrest, battery, aggravated assault, and attempted murder. I'm sure your eyebrows raised when I said attempted murder, but D'Amelio believes that each of these charges would likely have stemmed from soliciting an undercover police officer and trying to escape. It is very possible that the police officers would have exaggerated or trumped up the charges in order to secure a conviction or a plea bargain. If you find it hard to believe that police officers would actually exaggerate or falsify information, you're not alone. 61% of Americans generally trust police, according to a recent survey by Pew Research. But in 1970, few members of the black and queer communities trusted police. The Chicago Sea newspaper published the results of a law enforcement study group investigating 79 civilian homicides by Chicago police the year before, including James Clay Jr. In 76 of those 79 deaths, the police officers reported that the civilian had a weapon, although these weapons were only physically produced in 58 of the cases and of those 58, only three of the weapons were ever tested for fingerprints or ballistics. The city's own mayor at the time, Richard J. Daley, was quoted as saying, "'The police are not here to create disorder. "'They're here to preserve it.'" I believe that James Clay Jr. dressed as a woman, that he made his living on the streets as a sex worker. Yes, I am sure he resisted arrest, but I do not believe his earlier assault and attempted murder charges. Had those charges been true, he likely would not have been back on the streets by that fateful November 26, 1970, the last day of his life. Much of what transpired that night was detailed in a Chicago Daily Defender article written by Cheryl Butler, female impersonator killed by cop in West Side Street, brawl. According to the article and the police report, two Chicago police officers were cruising a West Side neighborhood known for its queer community. This would have been the area of Sacramento Boulevard and West Madison Avenue, where they initially spotted James dressed as a woman and waving a passing motorist. The officers, James Finley and Thomas Bowling, recognized James apparently, identifying him as a quote, well-known female impersonator. The first officer definitely knew James prior to that evening because according to that article by D'Amelio, one of Clay's previous arrests involved the same officer Finley. After spotting James, the two officers parked their car four buildings down at 3002 Madison Avenue, then followed James into a building at 3012 Madison Avenue, which today seems to be an abandoned lot from what I could find online. One officer entered the front of the building, while the other took the rear in an attempt to corner James. According to Officer Finley, he encountered James in the rear stairwell, where James made an attempt to get away. Officer Finley stated that James knocked him down, then took off through the alley. So that is the first interaction between James and officers Finley and Bowling that evening. The Daily Defender article explains that additional help was then called, but it seems as though Finley and Bowling just returned to the Fillmore police station where they worked to switch their cruiser for an unmarked car. They then returned to the area of Madison and Sacramento until they once again spotted James Clay, who by now had changed into men's apparel. The officers parked their car and approached Clay, identifying themselves. According to the police report, Clay then swung a knife at Officer Finley, which cut his leather jacket. Clay then took off, running west on Madison Avenue. The officers stated that they yelled for him to stop, but when he did not, both officers began shooting. James Clay Jr. died at 2948 Madison Avenue in Chicago, Illinois. He was 24 years old. Timothy Stewart Winter, in the Journal of American History, stated that James had been shot eight times in his back. But the Chicago Seeds article, They Mean to Kill Us All, provided more graphic detail, stating that not only was he shot in his back, his neck, and in the back of his head, he was also shot in the front of his head, in his chest, in his stomach, and in his penis. The Defender article states, female impersonator killed by cop, which implies a singular shooter, And for some reason, though I can't find the statement now, I remember thinking that just Finley had been responsible for the shooting. But in two articles, it states that both cops opened fire, so it would be hard to differentiate which officer actually killed James. To me, both officers are ultimately responsible for his death, and I think there are a lot of factors to this case that show police wrongdoing. The second time James was seen, he was dressed as a man. He was trying to comply with what the officers wanted, but that didn't seem to matter. James Clay Jr. wasn't hurting anybody either time he was approached by police, and both times he tried to get away, to walk away, to escape. So this seems like a personal vendetta. Officer Finnelly knew him from a previous arrest. The officers were dressed in plain clothes. They went back and got an unmarked car. James had gotten away from Officer Finnelly the first time, but that wasn't going to happen the second time. The officers did claim that James slashed an officer's leather jacket after they identified themselves. But where is the evidence that James actually had a knife? There was no trial, so there's no record that I can find of a knife or the leather jacket being taken into police custody. Where is the proof that this was self-defense? And how could it be self-defense if James was running away? He had his back to the officers. Their lives were obviously not in danger when they shot him down eight times. And if you need further evidence that this was a hate crime, consider the fact that although he was shot several times in the back, he was also shot through the front of the head, through the chest, through his stomach, and through his genitals. Being shot multiple times from the back, it would seem as though he would have fallen forward. So did Officer Finley's and Bowling roll him over to get in those final shots? Unfortunately for James, no witnesses ever came forward. There were no cell phone videos, surveillance cameras, or police body cams in 1970. But honestly, even if there had been, would the police have ever been charged? James Clay Jr.'s death at the hands of two police officers was covered by three newspapers, The Chicago Defender, The Sun-Times, and The Chicago Seed. While the Defender and the Sun-Times did not criticize the police force outrightly, the tone of their articles seemed a little skeptical of the police report. The Chicago Seed, though, blasted the Chicago police force in a two-page article highlighting police brutality amongst the black community, who was still reeling from police killings of the Black Panther leaders Fred Hampton and Mark Clark on December 4th, 1969. Just a few months before Clay's death, a group had been formed under the name of the Chicago Gay Alliance. According to both D'Emilio and Stewart Winners, this group demanded that the FBI investigate James Clay's death as a violation of his civil rights. The alliance claimed that, quote, street transvestites are the most upfront part of our community. Cops use transvestites to take out their hatred for those of us they can't reach so easily. James Clay was a gay martyr. The FBI, under the leadership of J. Edgar Hoover, whose own sexuality has always been a bit questionable, refused to intervene, as they often did in situations of race or civil rights. The officers themselves, James Finley and Thomas Bulling, were never brought to trial. In fact, at the time, it would have been considered a justifiable homicide. After all, James Clay Jr. was just another queer black victim of the police force. In the early 70s, a black person was six times more likely to be killed by a police officer than a white person. of the civilians killed by the police were black, although they made up only one-third of Chicago's population. James Clay also happened to be young, 24 at the time of his death. And according to the report by the Chicago Law Enforcement Study Group, the majority of civilians killed by the police were under the age of 25, at 62%. And that includes a tragic 22% of police homicide victims being under the age of 18. Ortez Alderson, who today is a member of Chicago's LGBT Hall of Fame, organized a memorial march for James a year after his death. At the time, Alderson himself was only 19 years old and was already a member of the Chicago Gay Liberation Front, organized the year before. In 1971, he would work with the Black Panther movement to bring queer community issues to their attention, such as the killing of James Clay Jr. James's death would lead to the founding of Chicago's first transgender political organization, the Transvestites Legal Committee, in 1971, according to Stuart Winner's Journal of American History article. And three years after his death, Chicago's cross-dressing laws were overturned in an interesting case that I should cover in a future episode. I regret that I was unable to find any information on James Clay Jr.'s family after spending hours trying to identify his family, birth and death certificates, arrest records, or even his final resting place. And although there was a memorial march held in his honor, there wasn't even a photo to be found. James Clay Jr., I am sorry for your senseless death. You were brave. You were strong. You knew exactly who you were, and you weren't afraid of the norms and laws that were put in place to oppress you. Thank you for your courage. 50 years later, James's life and death are so relevant to our world today. We are in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement. There is a much needed renewed focus on police brutality, particularly against people of color. The trans community is fighting for their rights and for respect even within the queer community. And just recently the Supreme Court ruled that yes, sexual identity should in fact be covered under anti-discrimination laws. James Clay Jr., who would be 74 today, might be surprised at the progress we have made in terms of queer rights, such as the legalization of same-sex marriage, but I also believe that he would be disappointed by the lack of progress we have made in terms of race and equality. The year that James was killed, 79 civilians were killed by police in the city of Chicago alone. In a news article by Lynn Peoples in June of this year, it was reported that around a 1,000 civilians are still killed by police each year. While black men in Chicago were six times as likely to be killed by police, today black men are still 2.5 times more likely to die at the hands of law enforcement. Unarmed black men are twice as likely to be shot in comparison to unarmed white men. In a study out of Texas A&M University, white police officers dispatched to largely black neighborhoods are five times more likely to fire their guns than black police officers dispatched to the same neighborhoods. The National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs reported that trans women of color are seven times more likely to be victims of police violence. But there is hope if reform in law enforcement is demanded. The same survey showed that within agencies who changed their use of force policies, there was a 21% reduction in officer-involved shootings. But at that time, which I believe was 2017, only 39% of the largest law enforcement agencies had made these policy changes. These reforms are important. There should be an attempt to recruit police officers who represent the populations and neighborhoods that they serve and protect. Use of force protocols must be changed and police officers need to be held accountable in a court of law for their actions. Body cameras must be used to protect the civilians and the police themselves, and efforts need to be made to establish relationships between police officers and the communities they serve. If you are white like me, even if you are queer like me, Your personal experiences with the police cannot define your worldview. I have always experienced positive interactions with police, even when I have been in the wrong, and I do respect and appreciate many police officers. One officer in particular who patrols my neighborhood frequently is a hero to me. When my infant nephew was choking, literally blue in the face, this officer arrived before paramedics and saved his life. There are good police officers, but there need to be more. They all need to be fair and honest and unprejudiced. What I have learned from James Clay Jr. is that the queer community needs to work together with the black community. We have always been unified in oppression. Bohemians, the Black Panther movement, and black politicians like Clifford P. Kelly, a straight black man who headed the repeal of the cross-dressing law, and Harold Washington, the first black mayor of Chicago who condemned police harassment against the queer community, all knew that we are vested in the same interest of equality. We need each other and we need to work together. James Clay Jr. was 24. He was brave and he was black and he was queer. His life mattered. Please do not let history repeat itself. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Queerly Criminal. Please subscribe for future episodes into crime and criminals connected to the queer community. And while you are there, check out the lighter and more fun mini-episodes where you will get to know your host, me, Jeremy Wayne, a little bit better.